Hi everybody, hi everybody, what a great intro video, I can see some of you doing that chin thing through that uh, video, really great, great to be with you uh, again, Kingsgate, always love to be here, and I say that every time, and I've been coming for 200 years, but it's always good to see you. Um, there are books out there, I always say that again, I'm not going to uh, talk at length about the books, just to say as ever, it's God's will that you purchase them, so... Why resist, little flock? And um, this book, Faith in the Fog, a lot of you have been asking about this because it went out of print. I went through a bit of a tough year about 20 years ago, battled some things, and uh, of, of the books that I've written, this has definitely been the one that has been uh, most well received. So there's some copies out there for you. I also want to bring greetings to Kingsgate uh, campuses. Wherever you are, it's great to be joining you as we complete this three-week series, this great series on hope. Uh, two weeks ago, Simon Edwards came and uh, spoke on the resurrection of Christ. He gave this beautiful phrase, which is so memorable, there are other worlds to sing in. And he talked about the fact that hope is not just whimsical, wishful thinking. We have a sure and certain hope in Jesus Christ. And then last weekend, Andrew Ollerton, uh, having heard Simon talk about the evidence for the resurrection, Simon, uh, Andrew talked about the relevance of the resurrection. And very powerfully, he described Jesus' resurrection, as Paul describes it, as the first fruits. What does that mean? It means that Jesus was resurrected, and now because of that, in Christ, one day as believers, we too will be resurrected. I, I think we need reminding of that. I, things slip my mind. I, I, I forget what I'm doing tomorrow. I forget what I did last week. I, I forget that I'm going to live forever. It's a challenge to just hold on to the truth of the resurrection. It's been such a joy to be reminded of that during this series. And Andrew talked about the basis and the body and the beef of our hope. And he made this statement, which I want to follow up on. Resurrection changes everything. And now this week, the third week, we're wrapping up the series by looking at just one verse, the final verse in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. And I've given this message the title, Mind the Gap. Mind the Gap. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Kay and I were in London um, for the London Marathon. And I'm very uh, pleased to humbly announce that uh, this year I had my best personal time so far. Um, two hours and 48 minutes. I need to tell you that I did hit the wall um, at uh, Canary Wharf. Um, but I recovered the roar of the crowd, stirred my soul, and uh, I recovered well and strong. And great was the celebration. Is that all you've got? Is that all? 
Yeah, well, well, thanks for that. I sensed a spirit of unbelief in the house right there. And absolutely so, because actually that's what happened in the dream I had the day before the marathon. I didn't actually run at all. Our daughter Kelly was running, um, uh, and it was amazing. London was packed. The underground was as busy as I've ever seen it. It was so packed out that Kay and I actually got separated. I got into the, into the car, uh, not the car, the tube, and she didn't, and I tried to put my arm out to close the door, nearly suffered an amputation for the cause of marriage. And uh, I remember the resounding, booming voice as the thousands were packed into the tube. Mind the gap. Mind the gap. In these words in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is celebrating the great truth of the second coming of Jesus and the ultimate resurrection that we in Christ will experience. But in verse 58, which we'll look at in just a moment, Paul is giving us the so what, if you will, of all of that great teaching. He's, he's showing us that we, we need to be mindful about how we live in the gap. That is so typical of Paul. If you understand Paul, he, he loves to outline great statements that are theologically, obviously beautiful, but then he comes crashing back down to the reality of the implications of those resurrection statements. He does that throughout 1 Corinthians. And so in chapter 11, Paul is talking about a theology of communion. But then he does a so therefore and tells us to and them to wait and share and love one another. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul sets out an elaborate theology of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But then he does the therefore and he says, and so you need to be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. And exactly the same thing happens here in the 15th chapter. Paul outlines the great theological truth of the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection that we will experience. But then he says, okay, now mind the gap. Here's how you live in the here and now in the hope of all that is to come. When I, when I started tuning in on this series, and I've followed it through these three weeks uh, I, I was celebrating because I think this theme of hope is a much-needed emphasis. When I became a Christian 250 years ago, we had a bit of a second-coming neurosis that was going on in our lives. We all wanted Jesus to come back, and books were written uh, about when it would happen and how it would happen, and people speculated about the identity of the Antichrist and one minute was Henry Kissinger, and the next minute it was Bob Dylan until he messed it all up by becoming a Christian, and they had to rewrite that book. And it all was a bit neurotic, and we really wanted Jesus to come back, but we were rather afraid that he might come back before we had actually got married, which was more of a hormonal concern than a theological one. And then not only that, we were all rather nervous that he might come back and we'd be left behind. And I went through all of that. And I'd go shopping with Kay. I wouldn't just go shopping with Kay. I'd go shopping with Kay. And we would be out in the supermarket and suddenly she would disappear. And after a couple of minutes, I'd, I'd start to get nervous and I... And I could hear Larry Norman, some of you remember him if you're old enough, singing a song, I wish we'd all been ready. 
And after five or ten minutes, I'd be thinking, I've been left behind. She's gone. And it was not the case. She was just face down in the fish fingers in the frozen food section. But we had something of a neurosis about the second coming. Listen, we are all pendulums. We are all in reaction to something. And the reaction to some of the silliness and the madness has sadly been a neglect of the truth that Jesus is coming again. You can say amen. You can say amen. You can say whatever you like. It is absolutely true that Christ is coming again and in him we will experience resurrection. What this also says to us is that Christianity is more than merely an ethical system. Every now and again I bump into people and they say, well, I don't, be- I don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but he's a jolly good chap, isn't he? And his ideas are good, so why don't we just put them into practice? That is not the gospel. The apostle Paul drives a truck through the idea of a gospel that is minus the resurrection. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. No, resurrection sits at the very heart of the gospel truth that we experience and affirm. And in verse 58, the apostle Paul wraps it all up, and he says these words. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Uh, When I was here just a few weeks ago, um, I confessed, I confess a lot, uh, because my life is a series of inept episodes that I experience for the general um, fun of the wider Christian public. And I confess that I I lose things and mislay them all the time. Uh, How many of you have this same problem? Just raise your hand. Uh, There's quite a few of us. We need prayer afterwards. I I mislay my sunglasses. I mislay my car keys. Sometimes I mislay my car. And the worst thing is when I take my glasses off to get in the shower, I put them down somewhere, I get in the shower, then I get out of the shower, and I can't find my glasses. But not only can I not find my glasses, but I don't have my glasses to help me to find my glasses. And what joy fills my heart when finally I locate the glasses, I place them on my nose, and suddenly everything is clear. The resurrection hope that we have changes the way that we see everything in life and death. And Nainin, the French philosopher, said, we do not see things as they are, but rather as we are. This hope that we have, hope is the lens through which we are called as followers of Jesus to see life. It changes everything. It changes our worldview. It changes our eternity view. It changes everything. Hope is the lens. When I became a Christian, someone said, we need to live in the light of eternity. And I thought, yes, what does that mean? And right here in this passage, The Apostle Paul shows us exactly what it means to live in the light of eternity, to live in the gap. So let's take a look at this. First of all, because of our resurrection hope, first of all, we stay together. We stay together. The Apostle Paul uses this term or this phrase, brothers and sisters. Resurrection hope changes the way that we see each other. When I first, when Ken and I first moved to America to a church there, um, 
people from the church, they said to me, what should we call you? Is it, is it Pastor Jeff or is it, is it Jeff? And I just, just said, Jeff will do. I said, just don't call me Jeffrey. Don't call, because it's, I mean, if, if your name is Jeffrey and you like it, God bless you and help you. But I think it sounds like a children's puppet, you know. Hello, here's Jeffrey. Say hello to the children. You know, that sort of thing. And so I said, you can call me anything you like, but don't call me Jeffrey. There is only one person on planet Earth, actually two, who actually calls me Jeffrey. Kay calls me that when I've been bad, which of course is very infrequently. And Pastor Dave calls me Jeffrey. Henceforth, he shall be known as Pastor Davey, I believe. Would be really appropriate. And so the Apostle Paul, he says... I'm going to call you brother and sister. And that's what they called us in America. Brother and sister Lucas, they called us. And I thought, that is freaky. That is, I feel like I'm trekking around with a nun. What is all that about? Of course, the brother and sister thing could be very handy, by the way, if you bump into that person from church that you've known for 30 years, but you can't remember their name. It's great. You can just, you know, you don't have to say, I can't remember your name. You just go, well, hello, um, brother. The Apostle Paul has not forgotten anybody's name. He is making a statement about the truth that we, that they were, we are resurrection family. And get this, he is writing to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians were painful. They're getting drunk in meetings, they're, they're, they're causing chaos, they're competitive, they've got personality cults, they're interrupting the preacher mid-flow, don't even think about it. But Paul writes to them, and he says, brothers and sisters, even though they're so irritating, they're family. Christians can be irritating. Just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean you lose your capacity to drive people nuts. I got irritated this week. I went on Facebook just to see what people in my world are having for breakfast. And when I went on Facebook... I just put a statement up celebrating some, I just congratulated a friend of mine who was the founder of Spring Harvest, a major Christian event in this country. And I said, congratulations, it's 40th anniversary. Not only that, my grandsons are Chelsea fans and uh, you're a Chelsea fan. And uh, I made a little humorous comment. I got this message. I don't know from where. And I'm really hoping the bloke isn't here today. <laughs> If you are, bless you. Great to hear from you. I got this message saying, how, you, know, you, you shouldn't glorify man. You shouldn't, praise should be reserved for God alone. And I'm like, give me a large break. Why shouldn't we encourage and celebrate one another? I, wasn't, I was celebrating him. I wasn't singing a worship song to him. But there are irritating Christians who drive you nuts. Maybe you're, maybe you're in a home group with one. And every time they open them, I think, oh, even so, come, Lord Jesus. But if you're in a family, you're going to have that stuff. You're going to have that aunt who keeps her mouth open when she's chewing the chicken at Sunday lunch. But you don't kick her out the door, do you? Because she's family. We're family. Resurrect. Oh, by the way, it's not only that they're irritating, we are. I am. Don't say amen. 
That would be rude. For some of us, it comes as a revelation that you can actually be irritating. But we are resurrection family. And we need to look at each other, not just in the light of what we are, but in the light of one day what we will be in Christ. C.S. Lewis said, when I first became a Christian, I thought I could do Christianity on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology, and I wouldn't go to church. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. It's kind of blunt, isn't it? But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education, and then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth-rate music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic-sided boots in the opposite pew. And then I realized I wasn't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. Hope changes the way we see each other. Are we going to irritate each other? Yes. There's no mystery in that. There are going to be times when our loyalty to each other is tested and we're frustrated. But let's be resurrection family. Secondly, stand firm. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Let nothing move you. Hope changes the way we value truth and the way we respond to trials. Uh, Last week, Kay and I were in Israel And we were at the River Jordan, the baptismal site where Jesus was baptized. And we baptized 35 people. And it normally goes uh, really well. Uh, The River Jordan at that point is not very wide. The width of it is less than the width of this platform. And uh, over there is Jordan. It's just a few yards away, a few meters away. Uh, And normally there's Jordanian border control with their machine guns. And over here is Israel, and there were two Israeli soldiers with their machine guns. Very welcoming atmosphere for a baptism. And in the middle of the river is the border. Right in the center of the Jordan is the border. So anyway, we went down into the waters. Everything was going really well, but we had to go a little deeper than usual because the waters were low. And we were baptizing about two meters from the border. Well, it all went really well until this rather large chap came down, and we trembled as he approached. And he's about six foot five, and a huge bloke. And uh, I, we, he stood up, and we were ready to baptize him. And as we went to put him under the water, somewhat enthusiastically, he threw himself back and emigrated partially. <laughs> it was the most international baptism. I think the top of his head went into Jordan, his lower extremities were still in Israel. And as he did that, um, Kay and I were completely wiped out and we went completely under the water. It was, there's some hilarious photographs um, of all of us flailing around, you know, looking like we're rejoicing. <laughs> the reason for our calamity was that we didn't have a secure foothold at that moment. If we'd have had a secure foothold, we would have been able to deal with the issue. That is exactly what Paul is saying to the fickle Corinthians who were being pushed around by all kinds of crazy theories about the resurrection. And he's saying, no, be steadfast, 
be immovable. And the word that he uses here to describe them planting their feet firmly upon faith is a word that he uses in 1 Corinthians 7, speaking to those who have chosen to be single. It means to settle the matter. It's settled, it's sorted, I've decided, and I will not be moved. What does that say to us? It says that we need to nurture and develop our foundations in the gospel. Yes, we need to hear the preaching. We need to be part of a life group, a home group, whatever. But we also need to take responsibility for the development of our own biblical foundations. Sometimes I hear people in church, they say, I'm not being fed. Well, as far as I understand it, the only people who actually need to be fed are those who are unable to feed themselves because of infancy or are incapable of doing so because of age or infirmity. The rest of us have to take responsibility for ourselves. How are our foundations? And then it speaks to us about standing firm in the midst of trials. In the midst of trials. You see, an eternal perspective should shift the way that we view our trials. That is so easy to say, I know, and so much more difficult to actually live in. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says. And remember, he knew about suffering. He'd been beaten with rods, thrown into prison for months on end, kicked out of synagogues, stoned to the brink of death, deserted by his ministry partners, slandered by so-called super apostles, executed at the end of his life. The man knew suffering. But then he says this because he's viewing all of that through the lens of hope. 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Standing firm. Feet planted. This is hard. This is rough. And I'm not going to be moved. Years ago when we first went to Oregon, Kay got unwell. We went to the doctors. We got the diagnosis. Actually, not a diagnosis. He said there are three possibilities here and one of them is extremely serious. And if it comes out to be that, you have to go back to England. You don't have medical coverage It was the day before Christmas Eve. He said, I'll give you the results after Christmas. Merry Christmas, doctor. We were living in a house with a wood stove. The whole house was heated by wood. I used to have to go out and chop wood. Extremely dangerous. It used to take me about three hours because most of the time I would miss the piece of wood. Sometimes hitting my own foot with the axe and making exclamations like, oh, praise the Lord. I'm standing outside with the axe. The wood is there. I stare at the wood. It becomes my fear. I take the axe and I yell out, I'm standing firm. Whack, split first time. It was awesome, baby. (laughs) 20 minutes later, I went back into the house with new wood for the fire and a new heart for the fight. Standing firm because of resurrection hope. Thirdly, serve wholeheartedly. Serve wholeheartedly. Paul says, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. You see, hope changes the way we look at serving. What is serving? When we serve the kingdom, much of what we're doing is serving the invisible. There are, there are rewards in the here and now. People appreciate and encourage and 
they're grateful, but much of what many people do in service is quietly behind the scenes. It is a moment-by-moment act of faith. Passive Christianity doesn't work. True faith energizes us to work and to serve. It's a bit like evangelism. When you share your faith in Jesus, your own faith in Jesus is strengthened. As you serve, you embody your faith, express your faith. And and Paul talks about the work of the Lord. What is the work of the Lord? Well, most commentators believe that Paul is referring specifically here to gospel activity. I'm excited about this series that is coming up, Whatsoever You Do. That series is going to wonderfully teach that we are 24-7 disciples, agents of the kingdom. Wherever we are, every one of us is actually a full-time Christian worker because we are all called to be salt and light wherever we are and serve the kingdom. Absolutely true. But because of the pendulum swing, don't ever allow that truth to cancel out the truth that as church together we need to serve specifically the gospel cause. That means volunteering. It means serving when you don't feel like it. It means those beautiful people on the, on, in the car park. And it's lovely when the weather is good and when it's snowing or cold or windy and they're serving. And, and so often, um, because you can't have the parking space that Jesus gave you, can be frustrating and they don't get appreciated. They are serving the work of the Lord. And it's hard at times. The the word the apostle uses is kopos, which means the fatigue involved in hard work. So let's serve, but let me make this comment. Let's make sure that our spirituality is nurtured as we serve. Every time I come to Kingsgate, and it's happened again this weekend, you people are praying and fasting. Sometimes I feel like coming here with a bunch of Mars bars and just throwing them out to help you out. And I always make jokes about it, which is probably highly inappropriate. And I say silly things like, it's not fasting, it's feasting. It's a spelling mistake, silly people. Let me make this statement. I believe that Kingsgate's commitment to prayer and fasting, as well as action and activity, is the appropriate balancing. Because if our spirituality does not match our activity, then our service becomes drudgery. I know. I'm busy. Last week, Israel. This morning, this morning, I'm here. You probably noticed that. Tonight, I'm in Nottingham. Next week, I'm in Colorado. I'm busy. I confess to you that at times, my commitment to my spirituality is squeezed out by my activity. And when that happens, I become irrationally resentful to nobody in particular, and it's foolish. So the prayer and fasting seasons corporately together as resurrection family, that is helping us ensure that as we serve the Lord, we seek the Lord. Someone has said fixedness is a condition of abounding in work. All activity has its center in rest. Notice that Paul says stand firm before he says Make sure you serve. We stand in Christ, relating to him. We serve as a result of that. Andrew said last week, don't build sandcastles in this life. And that allows me to just slow down for a moment. 
and say to those of you that faithfully serve in whatever campus, thank you for doing that. Thank you for keeping on, keeping on in your work and service for the Lord. And perhaps a challenge. Maybe you've adopted the posture of a spectator. Go to any football game, soccer game, you'll know that the spectators are normally the loudest people in the stadium. And they know exactly how the game should be played. It's amazing, really. They're sitting there having a beer and moving face, hand to face, inserting pizza. And they then inform multi-million pound athletes as to how they should play the ball. Don't be a spectator. Serve. Well, the last thing is this. Because of our resurrection hope, we stay in faith. We stay in faith. Paul says, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And Paul is wrapping the whole chapter up here. He begins chapter 15 by talking about the futility, the vainness of faith. Um, if they don't stand firm on the truth of the resurrection. In the middle of the chapter, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And then he ends the whole thing by pulling it all together and he affirms, well actually though, don't ever forget your labor, here's the truth, your labor is not in vain because of the resurrection of Christ. He ties it all together, resurrection. As I draw this to a close, let me concede this. At times, the truth that we will be resurrected is difficult to believe. There's a reason for that. It's humanly impossible. When my dad passed away, a few days after the funeral, I went to the funeral directors, the undertakers, to pick up a box that contained his ashes. It felt really weird. It came out of the undertakers. I used to have a dad. Now I've got a box of ash. And uh, I put the box on the seat next to me. I felt a bit weird about it. Like, you know, do I put a seatbelt on? Probably not necessary. And it's all right. You, you can smile at this. It's not, I'm not being precious about it. And like, some of you are a little bit nervous. Like, is it okay to smile? He's talking about his dad. Yeah, you, you can. And uh, I'm like, well, I don't think he needs a seatbelt. And then Kay and I went to a church yard, which he always loved. And we decided we'd have this little moment of sprinkling the ashes. But nothing in my life goes well. And I didn't gauge the direction of the wind. So I'm like, until we meet again, Dad, in our home beyond the shores. <laughs> and I emerge pebble dashed. And the absurdity of the moment hit me like it's absurd to believe in a resurrection with a handful of ash. But with God, all things are possible. And if he can throw Jupiter into being by just saying, Jupiter, go. Resurrection, of course, is going to happen. One day there will be a reward. A reward. Jesus spoke about walking through persecution. Matthew 5, in the light of reward. Loving each other in the light of reward. Giving in the light of reward. Prayer in the light of reward. Prayer, fasting in the light of reward. Reward coming. Ultimately, isn't it true, our reward will be seeing Jesus face to face. Some people say, when I, when I meet Jesus, I've got a few questions. Yeah, right. Got 27 billion people singing hallelujah. You're going to go, excuse me. We will see Jesus face to face. 
The day is the 22nd of November, 1963. A theatre is packed and everybody is caught up in the drama of the play. And there is a scene during the play where one of the actors has to cross the stage and turn on a transistor radio and tune into a local station. As the play unfolds, the actors are caught up in the drama of their performance, the scripted lines, the choreographed moves, and the audience is spellbound, captivated by this fictional story. And the character, the actor, turns on the radio, flicks it on, and begins to turn the dial. And there's that sound, that crackle, that hiss, that, that burst of music, that voice scanning through. And then suddenly, completely unexpectedly, he turned the dial and tuned with perfect precision into a news channel. And these words came out of the radio. Today in Dallas, Texas, President John F. Kennedy was shot dead and killed. And suddenly, the truth of the reality broke into the fictional situation of the play. And there was no way they could get it back. They had to cancel the rest of the play because the fictional drama had been vaporized by one sentence that spoke of the reality. We, my brothers and sisters, live surrounded by messages that are chaotic that provoke fear, that can potentially erode our faith. And if you will, may, may I put it like this, we live on a stage surrounded by fiction. But then 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we tune in and we hear a voice breaking through, not with news just of a death, but of a death and a resurrection and an ascension, and truth that he is coming again. And what is it we hear? We hear Jesus speaking to John, Revelation chapter 1. I am he that lives, and lives, and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And as we hear the perfect sound coming through from the word of God, our hearts and our minds are aligned to the impossible yet entirely true reality in Christ who lives. We too will live also. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.